Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and in our first November edition of the programme, my guest is one of this country's most distinguished biographers, Fiona McCarthy. Fiona achieved success with her first full-length book, A Life of the Artist Eric Gill. John Carey said it was so vivid you feel you know just what it would have been like to visit him. She also revealed herself to be fearless in exploring the more troubling aspects of her subject's sexuality. Lives of Byron and William Morris were to follow, also garnering great critical acclaim. Fiona McCarthy's Life of Morris was, according to Claire Tomlin, thrilling, absorbing and majestic. And now, after a detour to write a memoir, Fiona has returned to the Victorians and the Pre-Raphaelites to write a life of William Morris's lifelong friend, Edward Byron Jones, one of the age's most celebrated painters, but also a designer of everything from stained glass to slippers, and a living embodiment of the quality which Fiona refers to as very Victorian hyper-energy. Her biography charts the journey of Ted Jones, a boy born into a poor family in Birmingham who lost his mother in early infancy, and who thought himself destined for a career in the church, but went up to Oxford and discovered his vocation as an artist, and after a long struggle for recognition, transformed himself into Sir Edward Byrne Jones Bart, pillar of the establishment. Writing of Byrne Jones and Morris at the start of this book, Fiona McCarthy says, Byrne Jones was the greater artist, but Morris was unarguably the greater man. Byrne Jones' character is maddeningly evasive, Fiona McCarthy discovered, a sentiment felt by his contemporaries. I want to reckon you up, and it's like counting clouds, his friend and mentor John Ruskin complained. But that makes this biography all the more absorbing, as McCarthy explores the contradictory aspects of his personality. I began the interview by asking Fiona to go back 40 years to the first exhibition of Brian Jones' work that she attended in Sheffield in 1971. Could she recall the impression he had made on her then? Yes, I can remember that exhibition very, very well because I hadn't, I'd seen the odd Brian Jones painting in the Tate but never a whole exhibition and this was a really pioneering exhibition. It was in the Mappin Gallery in Sheffield and Byrne Jones at that stage wasn't a very popular painter. He'd gone through a long phase of neglect and even ridicule and I was just staggered by the power of the paintings that I saw there and their strangeness. I mean I'd never seen anything like these paintings. They, the paintings were actually very well selected. They were paintings that are now very famous ones. Um, there was the Las Veneris, the Wheel of Fortune, which is now in the Musée d'Orsay, and my most favourite, the Golden Stairs, which is now in the Tate, of course. And uh, I was just transfixed by the power and the oddness of them. I've seen you quoted as saying that your biographical subjects claim you. It's not so much you going out and choosing them, they claim you. And yet in the case of Brian Jones, you were sort of going back, having written a biography of William Morris, yes. I suppose you were kind of going back to a, a particular milieu, a particular time and a, a particular friendship. So what was it that drew you back to write, a, to write about um, the Pre-Raphaelites again? I think it was partly the work because with all my subjects, I've had a great admiration. I don't think I could possibly write a biography of someone whose work I wasn't interested in. So I find with Eric Gill, with um, Morris, that I really 
loved the work as a starting point. And so I did start Burne Jones with a love of the work and also by that time having written about Morris with with a love of that whole period. I love I love the sort of idealism, the ardour of it and how they were all radical young people when they got started. They wanted to change attitudes to art, attitudes to life. And so that was a big excitement for me. I like writing about idealists. You nonetheless describe Branjan's early on in the book as maddeningly evasive. What, what's the nature of that evasion, would you say? And, and is it possible to break some of it down? Well, that was the challenge I had with Burn Jones. He's he's less consistent than Morris. Morris has a a wonderful consistency, but Burn Jones is multifaceted. He's um, he's very solemn, very serious about his work. There's a wonderful expression used by his nephew by marriage, Stanley Baldwin, who says that he's he's got iron and granite in his soul, and he had this great persistence, huge work ethic, but he went in for being a comic turn. He'd suddenly turn into, you know, a Victorian joker and become a quite sort of crazy lightweight character in a way that Morris never would. And I love these contradictions in him. He was such a man of contradictions. He was sort of ardent and chivalric, and yet he'd be unfaithful to his wife, he'd fall in love again and again. So, you know, he had an extraordinary variety of lives. He was one life with many lives going on inside him. Were there particular areas of his life that you wanted to really explore, get to the bottom of, that you felt hadn't been fully plumbed in in other lives? I think nobody had ever written very seriously about Burne Jones as a not just as a painter, but as a as a designer of all sorts of things. He had a very broad view of what art was, which I think was reinforced when he went to Italy and when he found the Italian masters were doing art and design of, of all kinds in lots of different materials. And he himself, he was painting, yes, but he was also designing the most wonderful stained glass of its period. He was designing embroideries, he was designing tapestries, he was working on all sorts of different scales. He he designed huge stained glass windows, great scheme of mosaics for a church in Rome, but he would also attend to the design of a little pair of slippers for one of the women he loved, or a beautiful little golden brooch. So he was extraordinarily versatile and I don't think it's ever been brought out you know just what an what an amazingly versatile artist he was. Now his, his life began in, in Birmingham in 1833 and he would later say Birmingham is my city according to facts which I always rebel against as far as possible but in reality Assisi is my birthplace. Now we'll, we'll come back to the Italian question yes. but just just tell me because you you contend that in fact he was shaped by Birmingham a great deal more than, than he would later allow. So tell me a little bit about the milieu he was born into and how you think it shaped him. He was born into a lower middle class, very respectable family, but a struggling family. His father was a widower and he was a very unsuccessful frame maker and gilder. Um, so 
poverty, really. He was in respectable poverty. He was living in the centre of a city which was vastly expanding at that period. There had been a, a lot of civic unrest, uh, riots, which had haunted him as a child, the violence around him. And he was conscious of the the rampant commercialization of the of the city. It was very insalubrious, it was um, gloomy, it was frightening. And um, I think he registered at this stage that it, things were getting out of out of hand and this gave him his very radical view of, of art, of, of how art could, art could be a salvation from the industrial squalor and he fought for this all his life. He was a radical. And he managed to get a, a grammar school education in Birmingham and I wondered is it, is it right to see some of the things which were fueling his imagination as a kind of reaction against those commercial, industrial, politically charged aspects of his environment because he's he's imbibing the, the ancient classical world, he's imbibing Arthurian legend, Celtic mythology. Are, are those are those in some sense a reaction against the, the the sort of crass materialism around him? His upbringing in, in Birmingham was extraordinarily important, I think, because the industrial expansion was ruining people's lives. It was stultifying their imaginative, their educational development and he learnt from the legends that he was reading the stories because he was he was a tremendous reader he he was a, a a serious classical scholar and he was steeped in the classical myths and he found these not just a kind of escapism but an alternative reality for him taking him into an alternative imaginative world, which of course he pursued later in his great paintings. What did that imaginative world allow him to express in the paintings? I mean, I realise that's a rather, that's a rather large question, but what was it about those, those myths, those legends that were particularly potent when it, when it came to committing them to canvas, would you say? I'd say that Burne Jones was obsessed with the idea of the quest for instance, he took up the Perseus legend and did a great series of paintings, a Perseus cycle, and it's Perseus on the quest, and it's a classical story, but it can also be seen as a protest against the crass materialism of the times that he was brought up in, the times that he'd absorbed from his bringing up in Birmingham. and. The legends he translated, he translated, he took up the classical themes but translated them into a critique of the materialistic Victorian society and he's always questing. That's what you have to see in his paintings. He's setting the ideal as the thing to be searched for. It comes across from your biography, the real intellectual and aesthetic excitement that could be generated by, for example, discovering Mallory's La Morte d'Arthur or Chaucer or later the Roman de la Rose. It, was, it, was, it really intensely engaged his whole being, didn't it? Those kind of literary artistic discoveries. These legends were with him all his life. He discovered the Morte d'Arthur at a very early age, Mallory's great chivalric legends, and he, he and William Morris used them as a kind of 
yardstick. They were with them all their lives. Van Jones was using them in his art in all sorts of different materials. He was doing Arthurian paintings. He was making Arthurian stained glass. And then finally, Arthurian tapestries, the greatest of his tapestries, the Mort d'Arthur. And he saw the sort of uh, moral valour in, in the Arthuric, Arthurian tales that he translated into all sorts of different artistic materials in an extraordinary way. Now, he left Birmingham behind. He went up to Oxford. He sort of, it, it seems as though he sort of detached himself from Birmingham almost. And in some ways... Oxford was a disappointment to him. He was sort of expecting the Oxford and Newman and things had moved on. And, but it seemed to me there were two critically important things that happened at Oxford. One was he, went, he met William Morris and the other was he really emerged as an artist for the first time. He sort of declared himself as an artist and began to, to create. He was so disappointed when he got to Oxford by the absence of the Newmanite fervour that he'd expected both he and his friend William Morris were intended for the church when they arrived in Oxford, but they soon became totally disillusioned and they discovered their own kind of substitute religion, which was a religion of art. And they both decided almost simultaneously that they were going to change direction, that they weren't going into the church, that um, Morris at that point was going to be an architect and Van Jones was going to be a painter, and he pursued it from then on. Now, tell me about the place of John Ruskin in his intellectual development, because like with the discovery of medieval texts, it seems that, that Ruskin really set his mind racing. It was, it's, it's hard to maybe to understand for a, for a modern reader just what an exciting thinker Ruskin represented to that generation. Well, both Burne Jones and Morris discovered Ruskin simultaneously as they discovered so much. They discovered the stones of Venice and and they were completely take, taken over by Ruskin's view of architecture and of course excited by the way he wrote because Ruskin was a wonderful persuasive writer and um, they responded to his idea of the morality of art and and they said that it showed them the path which they would follow from then on and it's true Ruskin was the most huge influence on both these young men. I want to return to the Birmingham versus Assisi quote and, and think yes. now about the, Ital the Italian aspect of it and, and, and Ruskin enabled um, Brian Jones to, to visit Italy and, and, and indeed travelled with him on, on one of his journeys. And it's, it's perhaps easy for us today to, to, to forget that the art that Brian Jones had been able to see in England in his, you know, his 20s was fairly limited. You know, there weren't, there weren't colour reproductions or uh, any other readily available sources. There might have been some black and white photographs. But, and so going to Italy was, was really a revelation, wasn't it? To see, these, to see these paintings in the flesh, so to speak, in all their vibrant colours, it, it was really sort of transformative. I think he was so influenced by his Italian journeys. There were four Italian journeys in all, one made when he was still an undergraduate, and then very important journeys under Ruskin's guidance in the 1860s and early 1870s, when Ruskin told him to start with what paintings he was to find and to copy. And in writing the biography, I followed his journeys in as much detail as I could, which was quite quite possible because he 
left sketchbooks and he left notebooks and diaries of the journeys and his responses to things. So I could search out the very paintings that he'd done copies of and which he'd found just so overwhelmingly exciting coming face to face with these masterpieces that he'd seen some of them in black and white reproductions but not the real thing. I mean the real thing was just so overwhelming to him. You say the, the English dream of Italy was, was something that he, he helped to form. It wasn't something which was available off the peg to him just to, to, to reach down. He was actually helping to create this, this sense of, of the Italian artistic glories of the past. I think he was, uh, when he came back from Italy and began to paint, you can see the influence on his work and um, you can see how it becomes more ambitious and more, it has, he's acquiring a kind of rather mouvementé quality and he particularly came back and um, the stained glass becomes rather more monumental in the Michelangelo manner. He'd, in a wonderful scene, he'd, he'd arrived in Rome and he'd gone to the Sistine Chapel and he'd unrolled his travel rug and he'd got out his opera glasses and he lay down on the floor and he gazed at this Michelangelo ceiling of the creation of man and when he came back to England you can you can see the exact the influence on the work that he did later. We've talked about his relationship with Morris a little and, and also with Ruskin but we haven't mentioned um, Rossetti who's clearly another very important figure in his in his development. What was the, what was the nature of, of that relationship? When he left Oxford and he came to London, he knew the pre-Raphaelite art, he knew the paintings, he'd seen some of the paintings, but it was then that he met the artists themselves, these young radical artists. He met Millet, Holman Hunt and particularly Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who was very generous, saw his talent, took him under his wing, taught him, gave him lessons in art, lessons in life. He was much more sophisticated, a little older, and they formed a very, very close relationship, which was incredibly important to the young Burne Jones at that point. You, you mentioned uh, lessons in life, and it seemed to me there was a sort of Again, there was a sort of duality. There was a, a high-mindedness to the the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, but also a certain looseness that you you describe surrounding it. And and Burne Jones was sort of imbibing both those. I think that the looseness of that Pre-Raphaelite world was at first a little shocking to him. He was a rather naive boy from Birmingham still, but of course he was fascinated by it. It was a completely exciting new environment that he found himself in and the attitudes to art were enormously influential and exciting. I loved your description of another figure in his circle, Algernon Swinburne, whom you describe as a, a wicked angel, a different sort of counterbalancing influence on him, much more on the, on the sort of on the scabrous, lush side, if you like. I think he was very influenced by Swinburne, and this was a kind of counterbalance to Morris, in a way, who was always steadying but Swinburne excited him, you might say overexcited him, because Swinburne was interested in sexual peculiarities and um, Burne Jones really responded to this in quite an interesting way, because after all, 
he'd been a Numenite intended for the church and he went rather wildly in the opposite direction for a few years under Swinburne's uh, very persuasive influence. Am I right in thinking that one of the things you wanted to do in this biography, Fiona, was to bring Brian Jones's wife, Georgie, a bit more out of the shadows and illuminate her life and her relationship with her husband? I did want to bring Georgie out of the shadows because she was a very remarkable woman herself and she was actually from a remarkable family of sisters. One of her sisters was the mother of Stanley Baldwin, one was um, the mother of Rudyard Kipling. They were considerable figures and interestingly they were, you know, they were the daughters of a a fairly impoverished Methodist minister and um, I was interested in this whole, in the whole way that um, they transformed themselves into these rather powerful women of their period. Georgie was very musical. She was trained as an artist. She had a considerable intellect. She was um, a great friend of George Eliot's, for instance. She was a formidable figure on her own account. And I think perhaps in a way, although Burne Jones depended greatly on her, perhaps in some ways he rather came to resent her powerful personality. It wasn't an easy marriage. You know, he was always straying off in opposite directions. He was a romantic at heart. And I think perhaps her very steadiness and intellectual rigour, perhaps she was the wrong wife for him, you might say. And as you say, she had artistic ambitions of her own, but really had to set those aside, didn't she? in order to fulfil her other duties. And you quite a, a, what reads to us today as a really patronising sort of <laughs> remark of Ruskin saying, you know, well, you know, that's fine, but you can only attend to artistic things when you've attended to all your other, you know, domestic duties. It's, it's really just a, it can only be a sideline. Well, Ruskin was far from a feminist and um, he did rather do down Georgie, who was, who was after all, talented herself. And... Um, even in radical pre-Raphaelite circles, there wasn't really much chance for women to develop their own artistic talents. And um, Georgie was, to some extent, pushed into the background while she was bringing up her children. But then, rather wonderfully to me, she, towards the end of her life, she she becomes a, a quite formidable figure on her own account. She becomes a a parish councillor when parish councillors were first invented and she, after Burne Jones's death, writes the most the most wonderful biography. Um, She started on, on, on this biography of her husband not having ever written anything before but she did it with such intelligence and and such determination that I find myself admiring her tremendously towards the end. She becomes the keeper of the flame, which is always a always a powerful position, <laughs> even if you have to wait for it. <laughs> yes, I mean she had a bit of a difficult time writing the writing the biography. There were things that you know she couldn't or certainly didn't want to make public in in Burne Jones's life, but all the same. It is really, as a piece of writing, extraordinarily well done. Now, one of the things she didn't want to write about was her husband's relationship with Maria Zambaco, a Greek heiress. 
with whom he had a, a very passionate relationship in the late 1860s. Was that really, in a sense, the, the decisive event in his emotional life, or is that, is that too crude a, a statement? I think the affair with Maria overturned him completely. It, it was a very decisive event in, in his life. It affected his art very dramatically because she became the model, the muse figure, the, the equivalent really of Rossetti's loves, Elizabeth Siddle and then Janie Morris herself, the visual obsession. His feelings for Maria were very much obsessive and she was beautiful, she was flirtatious and he was completely swept off his feet by her. It ended extraordinarily badly. In the end, she she left, she, she drifted back to Paris and he was left desolate. He wasn't able to work for years because he was quite a neurotic character and the affair affected him so badly that he was in nervous depression for quite, really quite a few years. And in the immediate aftermath of that relationship, Brian Jones takes himself off to Italy and at the same time William Morris is in Iceland and Brian Jones himself says in some ways that's symbolic and the two men are sort of are pulling apart they're going in different directions what, what, what was what was the nature of that sort of divergence I think Morris was a man of the north he he was an endurer he went off to Iceland once the affair with uh, between Rossetti and his wife had reached a certain pitch he he took himself off to the Nordic climbs, but you see Ben Jones in, in extremis. He, he went in the opposite direction. He went to the, to the lush southern climbs. And, um, I think this, um, this really does characterize a sort of difference between them. You know, Morris was an endurer. Ben Jones was, uh, had a very different temperament and he was more southern. By nature, he hated the, the thought of um, Iceland and the raw fish that uh, Morris consumed and all those glaciers and um, wild, wild eruptions of volcanoes. He couldn't stand the thought of that. But Italy, Italy just entranced him. And as he grew older, did Byrne Jones embrace the establishment and was he embraced in turn by the establishment? Is that, is that another difference between him and William Morris? They went in very different directions socially as they grew older. Byrne Jones was, a, after lots of years of ridicule and rebuffs, he eventually had a tremendous success when the Grosvenor Gallery opened in Bond Street in 1877. And um, he became the star artist of the Grosvenor Gallery and he became a great star of the aesthetic movement altogether. And he was being asked out and um, he was suddenly in the whole social world of that period. And um, I mean, in a way, one sees that he would respond to it delightedly. He grumbled about it, but, you know, he did enjoy being asked to breakfast with the Gladstones and um, off to stay the weekend with um, the Howards and he did enjoy it. He enjoyed suddenly being the hero when he'd been the despised and ridiculed artist, neglected. And eventually he did become 
he became a, a baronet, much to Morris's disgust in a way, although he, he was kind, Morris, he let him get away with it up to a point. Georgie, his wife, was appalled and refused to be called Lady Burn Jones. She thought he'd given in, and perhaps in a way he had, but one can understand it, I think. Tell me a little bit about Brian Jones's self-depiction, because there are lots of cartoons in the book which are a wonderful counterpoint to the to the richness, the colours of the of the yeah. paintings. And one in particular sticks in my mind. There's a very corpulent William Morris reading, and there's a very emaciated, haggard, rather sort of slumped Brian Jones. And this seemed to be a bit of a, a running theme in in his self depiction. So, how did how did he want to portray himself? He tried to put himself over as the abject character, the the failure, the man who could never finish his paintings. There's a wonderful little cartoon of despairing looking Burne Jones with um, his unfinished masterpieces, loads of unfinished canvases behind him. So he always puts himself over as a kind of pathetic, rather scarecrow figure, too thin and um, not at all handsome, which I think is one reason perhaps why he depended on this sort of adoration, why he was so carried away by Maria Zambacco and why he he loved the adulation of the women of the aesthetic movement. He he wasn't at all confident about his appearance or his personality, but he did ma- manage to make himself charming. For a modern reader, I suppose one of the most perplexing and indeed possibly troubling aspects of his life is his relationship with young girls. How, how difficult is it really from from this vantage point of the early 21st century to discern what the nature of that relationship was, what he actually felt and what transpired between him and a lot of the young girls in his circle. It's so difficult now because we, we're apt to infuse our reactions with the feelings of our time and it's difficult to track back into Burne Jones's feelings for these little girls, teenage girls, the girls that he called the pets. I think one has to see that he, I mean, he rarely did adore little girls. He had a, he had a instant rapport with them. He was very, very good at getting on their level and, and telling the sort of jokes that they liked and doing these wonderful little cartoon drawings that would um, send them into fits of giggles. And these I think that, that that these relationships were terribly important to him and Georgie describes it as um, the responsiveness being part of the child that was in him and I think that this is this is probably true. I think it was perhaps one has to look at it in a slightly different way in in that it was a it was a worship of innocence which was very prevalent among people of, of Burn Jones's milieu at this at this period. I mean one thinks of um, obviously of Julia Margaret Cameron and her pictures of um, these enchanting children, her her photographs of um, young girls just on the the verge of being nubile. And it was a figment of, of the sort of artistry of that time. It was something that was quite generally pursued. And I think one must try and see 
Burn Jones's love of the of these these girls just ju- just emerging into womanhood as as part of a kind of aesthetic appreciation of that time rather than in purely crude sexual terms as we all too easily view these things these days. I mean, there are many scenes in this book that will stick in in my memory, but one of the ones which is particularly potent, I thought, was the image of him as an old man. Well, old, in, maybe in, in Victorian terms, he was in his in mid-60s and he, his life was, was nearing an end. And he's working on his magnum opus, The Sleep of Arthur in Avalon. And you say that he talked in, incessantly as he was painting. And as he was talking, he was reminiscing about his childhood, his father, his relationship with Rossetti and, and Morris. And I thought it was a wonderful scene, this this old man working in this huge painting, which is in itself <laughs> valedictory. Yes. It was all, it's all, almost too good, be, too, too good to be true, like a sort of dramatic monologue about his, you know, sort of freely associating about his, his past. I thought it was yes. wonderful. And, and someone w- was noting down the, the, the essence of, of, these, um, of these utterances. Yes, luckily he had this... Um this Boswell to his Johnson, really, which was his studio assistant, Thomas Rook, who was writing down the reminiscences that were pouring out of him as an old man in the studio. And they've, they've been published, and there, is, and there are even many more that haven't been published, which are in the National Art Library, which I was uh, lucky enough to be able to read right through. And it gives you an, an astonishing impression of the richness and oddness of his life coming from Birmingham, the poor boy from Bennett's Hill ending up as Sir Edward Burne-Jones Bart. You know, it was quite a life. I mean, finally, Fiona, I mean, clearly Burne-Jones is at the apex of the fluorescence of a particular Victorian aesthetic, but you want to you want to argue for him being more than that and actually being a bridge into the 20th century and the you know connections with European symbolism and 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 other artists. I mean, you 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 mentioned the stained glass and and suggest that Chagall and Matisse wouldn't have been quite the same without Brian Jones. You see yes. him as sort of feeding various sources in in twentieth century yes. art. I think he did lead on to a lot of things. He certainly suggests to a lot of symbolist artists what could be done in that direction. His work was very very well known on the continent in the by the early 1890s, he was a big figure in Paris, in Belgium, and you can see the way that he influences symbolist artists. You can also see the way that he he's influencing decorative artists like, say, Gustav Klimt, whose friezes of the early 1900s are very Burne Jones in tenor, and there are lots of other examples. And I think you also have to realise how important his stained glass was on on the whole tradition of stained glass in in this country with um, very many very fine late 19th early 20th century stained glass artists following him and also on the continent in the way that um, expressionist stained glass got going so Burn Jones was a really considerable influence perhaps more than is very very well understood Fiona McCarthy. The Last Pre-Raphaelite is available now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. The best way to be sure you never miss another Faber podcast is to sign up for the programme by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category.
My next guest on the Faber podcast will be Matthew Sweet, who'll be telling me about some of the surprising things which went on in London's Grand Hotels during the Second World War. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.